We're in Nehemiah chapter 4, and I've got a really simple point tonight. It's on the screen. Uh, when God's people do God's work in God's way, there will always be opposition. If you remember nothing else apart from tonight, remember that one thing. When God's people do God's work in God's way, there will always be opposition. What I mean by that is that if you're a Christian here tonight and you are loving Jesus and you want to live a life that honors Jesus and you want to obey Jesus and serve Jesus, then you'll be opposed. You might be ridiculed, you might be slandered, you might be attacked verbally, you might be attacked physically. I know it's not a cheery topic that's the reality. If you're going to do God's work in God's way, we will face opposition. You ever heard of a man called George Whitfield? 18th century evangelist. Uh, His sole desire in life, his sole purpose in life was to to preach Christ, to, to build God's church. As he stood in the pulpit Sunday after Sunday, uh, people threw rotten fruit at him. One Sunday morning, someone flung a dead cat at him. But his most painful opposition, what wounded wounded him most was when he was vilified by Christians. One Sunday morning in 1740, this happened. I'll quote him. In the morning, I went to church and heard my bishop preach. I think it's scarcely possible that he could have painted me in more horrid colours. All manner of evil things were spoken against me, all false, for Christ's sake. He even drew a parallel between me and people who were guilty of the most notorious incest and murder. How would you respond as you listen to your own bishop attack you and vilify you? Whitfield said this, I didn't feel the least resentment against the preacher. No, I pitied him and I prayed and I prayed fervently for him. And I prayed for my soul the Lord would convert this man as he once did the persecutor Saul and let him know it is Jesus Christ whom he is persecuting. That evening at church, many people came to hear me preach. I was informed They came to hear what I would say in response. But I held my tongue and I made no reply. Isn't that beautiful? Somebody attacks you personally and you don't retaliate. You just pray for them. It's just one example of facing opposition. I I could talk about uh, Charles Simeon, if you've heard of him. He, He grew a massive church in Cambridge in the UK, and the university staff opposed him. His students opposed him. His own members of church opposed him. They locked the pews. They locked the church to stop him preaching Christ. They verbally abused him. They physically attacked him. I could talk about William Wilberforce or John Newton or John Wesley. They were all opposed for preaching Christ. I I could talk about missionaries who we've sent out from this church. And their visas have been denied. They have been physically assaulted. Their kids have been mocked. I could talk about pastoring church by the bridge for the past 14 years and the community have hated what have happened here and other churches have mocked and ridiculed and personally have been abused 
when God's people do God's work in God's way, there will always be opposition. And I hope you know that. I hope you know if you're following Jesus and you're longing to live a life that honors him, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy. And I hope you know who's behind the opposition, who's behind the slander and the criticism and the attacks. In one word, it's Satan, it's the devil, it's the evil one. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 calls him the schemer. He is plotting to stop God's church from growing. Ephesians chapter 6 says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings. It's against the evil one. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 talks about the devil prowling around like a roaring lion wanting to bring down Christians. If you try and live in a way that builds God's church and honors your Savior, not everyone will like it. If you are on fire for Jesus then the evil one will dream and scheme and plot and plan how to bring you down. If you don't want to face opposition, if you want a nice, quiet, comfortable life, here's my top tip. Be half-hearted in your faith. Just keep Jesus on the sidelines and compromise. And the devil will leave you alone. But if you want to live wholeheartedly, Serving Jesus, loving Jesus, obeying Jesus, building his, his kingdom, be ready for opposition. Now, when a church begins to grow, when people come to faith, we should be ready for opposition. And one of Satan's greatest weapons is people. Uh, people who will attack you and ridicule you and slander you and discourage you. People in the world, people outside the church who hate what is happening in the church but also people from inside the church who can act in the most godless way and people who are close to you who can say the most horrible things. Every year around early December and around March time, every single year, Rachel and I, my wife and I, have exactly the same conversation. Christmas is coming. Easter's coming. What's going to happen this year? Will it be an attack from outside the church? Will it be a conflict inside the church? Will there be some major crisis? What's the devil going to do to stop us preaching Christ this Christmas or this Easter? And speaking very personally, the past two years I've faced opposition like never before. Complaints from the community, venomous, anonymous emails, harsh, critical, anonymous letters gossip behind my back and lies to my face. But when, when God's people do God's work in God's way, there will be opposition. And that is Nehemiah chapter 4. As soon as God's people started to work on that wall, the opposition started. And what struck me this week is God wanted them to rebuild the wall. It was God's will to rebuild the wall, he didn't, but he didn't remove the opposition. He allows the opposition because I found this, that, that when you stand up the opposition and when you respond appropriately, it, it drives you to a deeper love for God and a deeper dependence on him. So please open your Bibles to Nehemiah 4. The year is 445 BC and God's people have been back in Jerusalem for, for quite a while now. And in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, we met a man called Nehemiah. And one day, his brother knocks on the door. And Nehemiah says, how are things back in Jerusalem? 
and it's not good. The wall is broken down, that's no protection, that's no city, and God's people are not living distinctive lives, and Nehemiah weeps, and Nehemiah prays. In chapter 2, the gracious hand of God is on Nehemiah, and the king allows him to go back to Jerusalem. And in chapter 2, again, he, he inspects the walls, and it is bad news. The walls are in destruction, and it's devastation. And God's people... They rally around, they say, let's start rebuilding. And so you read chapters 1 and 2, you think, well, this is great news. The people working together are going to rebuild the wall, it's going to be wonderful. And then you hit chapter 4. Because as soon as you start to work, that's when the opposition starts. I hope you've realized that. You can talk and talk and talk about church and talk and talk and talk about God But when it starts to really impact your life, that's when the real opposition begins. And so firstly tonight, the reality of opposition. The voices from outside the church, the complaints from the community, the attacks of the world, the anger, the threats, the ridicule, the criticism. Look at chapter 4 verse 1. When Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall... He became angry and was greatly incensed. And we met Sambalat back in chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 2, he is disturbed. That's the word used in chapter 2, verse 10. He is disturbed because God's people are being cared for and God's people are doing good works. And he hates that. Uh, here in chapter 4, he is angry. The word there, he is mad. He's furious. So why is he so worked up? Why is he so angry? It's just a wall. It's just bricks and mortar, isn't it? No, it's not just a wall. It's God's people living in God's place, living in God's ways. It's God's people honoring their God again. And he hates it. The real reason is that he's threatened by it. He's threatened by this power and he's threatened by his lifestyle. Because when God's people start to live distinctive lives in the world, it exposes godlessness and the world hates that. Many, many, many years ago, as I led youth groups, this is a long time ago, a teenager came to faith in Christ. A teenager became a Christian. And the parents came to see me, and they were furious. They were so angry that their child had become a Christian. I think they would have rather their child got involved in drugs and alcohol than in the church. They hated it. And I couldn't understand why until I realized that their teenagers started to live differently at home. And they hated that because it exposes their godlessness. And the anger turns to ridicule and the verbal mocking and the the sarcasm starts in verse 2. We're supposed to read verses 2 and 3 with this kind of sarcastic tone. What are those feeble Jews doing? They are so weak. They're so pathetic, the church, aren't they? Will they restore the wall? They talk about building God's kingdom. It's a waste of time. Will those Christians offer sacrifices? Will those Christians finish the work in the day? Can they really bring the stones back to life? A hundred years of rubble. Can they really do that? It's a waste of time. And then Tobiah joins in adversely. Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side. Of course he was because... Critical people love to hang out with other critical people. And he is whinging, he's complaining, he's trying to be funny. 
Oh, they're building this stupid wall. A fox climbing on it would break it down. My friends, we all know that words, ridicule, criticism, it shouldn't impact us, should it? We shouldn't take it to heart, but we do, don't we? As Proverbs says, words pierce like a sword and the devil is very skillful at using people and their words to ridicule and mock Christians and word can stick with us. Words are powerful. I've prayed about this. I'm going to read just one sentence from one letter I received last year. It said this. Paul, I will do everything in my power to stop your church from succeeding and to make you personally suffer. And I want not to listen to that. So I just ripped it up. Because it's just words and critical words. And God's people pray and God's people keep on working. We'll come to that in a minute. But as the, as the war goes up, so the anger increases. As the war goes up, so does the opposition. See that in verse 7, when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod, so all people from all nations, they're all ganging up against God's people. And when they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem wars had gone ahead, despite their criticism, despite their ridicule, they became very angry. They became furious. And their anger turns to threats and intimidation and violence. Verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, to stir trouble against us. Verse 11, the enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. That's often the way, you know, if the verbal doesn't work, let's try the physical violence. And I hope you know that as we sit here in the comforts of Kiribati tonight, millions of Christians are being physically threatened. They're being verbally and physically abused for their faith. Again, I don't want to dive into the Israel Fallah debate and don't hear me commenting on the way he went about it. I think he was really stupid in the way he went about it and without any context. But end of the day, this man just put up a Bible verse on social media. That's what he did. But the anger and the hatred and the venomous comments and then the threats and the intimidation that you will never play rugby for Australia again. And to be honest, I really fear for the next generation of Christians. We as a church are preaching a gospel of hope and love and peace and forgiveness and yet our country is becoming increasingly anti-Christian. And our country is becoming increasingly opposed to the gospel message. We have less and less religious freedom and less and less freedom of speech, and we kind of expect that, that the world will hate us. What we don't expect is when Christians hate us. That internal opposition, that internal discouragement, and the negativity. And so the wall has reached the halfway mark, like a marathon when you hit the 21k mark, and then the mental battle begins. And we're supposed to read discouragement into verse 10, and exhaustion and weariness. 
Meanwhile, the people in Judah, that is God's people, that is the church, they begin to say, oh, the strength of the labors is giving out and there's so much rubble. And we just can't keep on going. We can't keep on doing this for you, God. They're discouraged. They're downhearted. They are weary. They are worn out. And that's what gospel work can do. It can wear you down. You've worked tirelessly. You've worked so hard and you face so much crap. And you look around and think, this is just too hard, God. You know, whenever I start a new ministry or start a new service or start a new church, I always warn the people who are going to be involved, around the six-month mark, you will be discouraged and you'll be weary and you'll be worn out. It's like when you become a new Christian, you know, it's all exciting for the first few months. And six months into it, the reality hits. And the enemy loves that and he will take worn out, weary Christians and he'll whisper in our ears, it's not worth it, you can't do this. Why bother? Waste of time following Jesus. And it's not just people within your church, it's the opposition comes from other Christians in other churches, sometimes from people you've never met before. But they have an opinion. That is verse 12. The Jews who lived near them. Notice those words. The Jews who are not involved in building the wall. They're not involved in the kingdom work. They're not actually doing the work themselves. They just live near them. But they've got an opinion. And time and time again, ten times over, they keep saying, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. They're like prophets of doom who just want to bring you down and tear you down. Now, I'd never heard of tall poppy syndrome until I came to Australia. But we are very good at it. If anyone is successful, chop them down. If your church is growing, if the spirit is working, you must be doing something wrong. You must be preaching a false gospel. You must be compromising in some way. It must be all style and no substance. That's the accusation of church by the bridge. You know, in many ways, the opposition from other believers is, is so much more difficult to handle them from the attacks of the world. And you need, you need grace, you need patience, you need godliness. And the other opposition comes from your own mind, from your own voices in your own head. See that in verse 14? Nehemiah says, Do not be afraid, don't fear. Because when God's people hear these mocking voices and the threats and the experience the anger, the response is to be fearful. And Satan uses fear to paralyze God's people. The fear of failure. We can't do this. We're going to fail at this. This is not going to work. Or the fear of rejection or the fear of conflict. It's going to be messy. We're going to get hurt. Because that's the reality. When God's people do God's work in God's way, there will always be opposition. So how do you respond? How are you going to respond to the people who oppose you for your faith? I love this quote. All the greatest church leaders know how to lead in the face of opposition. And Nehemiah is an extraordinary leader. I tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't form a committee to discuss the criticisms and the complaints. 
He doesn't gather a team around him to engage in conversations and to refute the claims. He doesn't go onto social media and to air all his grievances to the whole world. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't hurl back incense, insults at them. As Proverbs say, if you respond to a fool according to their folly, then you become a fool. And these peoples are foolish. They are foolish enough to oppose God. So do not engage in conversation and do not try and win the argument. I know how hard that is. I know that you want to correct misinformation and put your point across, but please don't do that. The best thing you can do to respond is this. Number one, you pray. You lift your voices in prayer. You get on your knees and you cry out to your God. You talk to God first and you plead with God first because prayer is not your last resort. It's your greatest weapon against your opponents. John Bunyan said this, you can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. So you stop and you you remember that God is sovereign and God is in it and God is over it and God has got you and he's allowed this opposition. So get on your knees and pour out your hurts to God. See that in verse 9? But we prayed to our God. Literally, we pleaded to our God. It's an interesting prayer, verses 4 and 5, isn't it? It's a fascinating prayer, verses 4 and 5. Look at that prayer of Nehemiah. Hear us. Please, God, listen. Here is our God because you are Heavenly Father and we belong to you. And we are despised, we are discouraged, we are rejected, we are being tormented. And he seems to get a bit vindictive in verse 4. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. He's saying, allow our enemies to experience what we experience in the exile Don't cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, God. This is not a prayer of personal vengeance. He is not talking maliciously. He has such deep pain for God and deep pain for God's people. He just wants God to act in justice. He wants God to judge and to bring justice to the situation. And Nehemiah is really saying... This is for you to handle, God. This is not my battle. You are God, so you deal with it as you, you see fit. It is so liberating, you know, when you hand it over to God. Now, George Whitfield prayed. Pray for people who write those letters of criticism. Pray for people who slander you by name. Pray for your most vocal opponents. Here's a great prayer to pray. Gracious Father, there are times when the odds feel quite stacked against me. Sometimes it feels like I'm outnumbered and outgunned and with the naked eye, the enemies of justice and truth and the gospel greatly seem to outnumber your troops. And Lord, serving you feels quite overwhelming and at times even futile. But you are God and there is no other. You are mighty and you're in control and your ways are never in need of tweaking. So help me, Lord, and help all your servants throughout the world not to become weary in preaching your gospel and planting churches in doing justice and loving mercy. Help us, Lord, for you are God and there is no other. So, friends, it's all a ridicule you for being a Christian. 
It's someone attacks you for your faith. Get on your knees and pray and plead with God and cry out to God. That's the first response. You pray. The second response is to keep working, to keep serving, to keep honoring your Savior. Yes, we pray, but we get on with the work of building God's kingdom. Charles Spurgeon said this, Pray as if everything depended on God. Then preach as if everything depended on you. That's what the people did here. Verses 4 and 5, they prayed. And in verse 6, so we kept on working and we rebuilt the wall. And the people worked with all their heart, or literally there is all their mind. They, they kept their focus on the task in hand. They had a job to do. They had a wall to build. They had a God to serve as they kept on serving him. And I love the fact that they're not naive. That they're not blinkered to the opposition. They put things in place, verse 9. They posted a guard to meet the threat. Uh, Verse 13, they stationed people behind the lowest points of the wall. And they had swords and spears and bows. They had weapons against their enemies. Uh, Verse 16, from that day on, half of my men did the work, rebuilding the wall. The other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armors. I love verse 17. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and they held a weapon in the other. Serving God with one hand, eyes on the opponents with the other. Such a cool picture. If we're going to keep on living for Jesus, we we don't lose heart. We keep on working. We keep on serving. We keep on honoring God, but we're not naive to the opposition. And what's the best weapon you've got is the Bible and prayer. The Bible and prayer. So be alert, be aware, be on your guard, but don't lose heart. Please don't stop us doing kingdom work just because you get criticized. It is so easy to get distracted, it's so easy to get discouraged. But just keep on serving Jesus, keep on serving your Savior. I love verse 14, he says, fight for your families. Fight for your sons and fight for your daughters and fight for your wives and fight for your homes. Protect them. Let me ask you, do you want to fight for the future of gospel work here in Sydney? Do you long for the next generation of Christians to have freedom of speech? Well, fight for it now. Do you long for your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids to have scripture in schools here in the city? Do you long for that? Well, fight for that now. Do you long for people in a hundred years' time to be sitting in this building with freedom to worship Jesus and to read the scriptures? Well, fight for it now. Don't stop fighting. We are here today because previous generations fought for truth and fought for the gospel. And we're called to fight for truth and fight for the gospel today. The world will mock us and the world will ridicule us. And other churches might mock us, but we stand firm. And we hold on to that truth. If you want the gospel to go out into Sydney in 50 and 100 years time, you are called to fight. Do not be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't give in. We respond by praying, by working, but ultimately by trusting God. I love how God is described in this chapter. 
He described in verse 14 as great and awesome. He says, remember the Lord who is he's great and he is awesome. Literally, he is all-powerful and he's all-inspiring. He is all-powerful and he's all-inspiring. And he is the one that we serve. Verse 15, God have frustrated their plans. That's the God that we serve, the one who's in control of all things. He will not be outwitted by the enemy. But I love especially verse 20. Our God will fight for us. He does not leave us to battle alone. He doesn't leave us to face our opponents by ourselves. He is fighting for us because he is with us and he's for us. He's not against us. Greater is he who's in you right now than he who's in the world. They can say what they like. They can write what they like. They can do what they like. But our God will fight for us. And he will protect his church and protect his people. And if you ever question that, look at the person of Jesus Christ. Almost every day of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, he faced slander, Abuse, opposition, verbal and physical. And then they grabbed him. And they flogged him. And they spat on him. And they marched him up a hill with carrying an old wooden cross. And there they crucified him. And Jesus, our leader, our Nehemiah, the one who encouraged us to keep on fixing our eyes on him, he did not grow weary. He endured the cross scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of our Father because it is finished and he's done it all. And he is for us, he's not against us, and he will fight for us. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. I know it's not a positive, upbeat sermon tonight, but it is realistic. Now when God's people do God's work in God's way, We will always, always face opposition.